from runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 286 with guest Robert Bogue, recorded Monday, October 8th, 2012. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. I'm on the road for the .NET Rocks road trip, and you can see that at .NET Rocks.com slash roadtrip.aspx. And I stopped in Indianapolis, which happens to be the hometown of none other than Robert Bogue. Welcome, Robert. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming to my hometown this time. I appreciate that. How convenient, huh? It is convenient. And we've been driving hither and yon. I got in late last night, and uh, we've been chatting, of course, uh, for the past few days as I was getting closer to your place. Uh, well, I guess we did a show only a few months ago. Yeah, it's been uh, a few. Yeah, talking about uh, the uh, the keys to success. Nine keys to SharePoint success, yeah. To, to success. And you do like your lists, too. The You know what happens is, is all of the uh, companies that print the articles and so forth, mm-hmm. they love lists. They love lists. They want a number. Like, can I have five or seven or nine? Or like, yeah, yeah, you can have nine. Well, that makes a lot of sense, actually, because in my mind, I got to think as a consultant, you know, we, we do similar jobs, of course, on different products that... Uh, you have a checklist of things you go to look for just to get to the essence of problems when folks are struggling with products. We never get called when everything's working. We only get That's called true. For, yeah. I only get called for problems. Not only that, you generally only get called for hard problems. Exactly. The really <laughs> nasty, messy ones they've tried to figure out and screw up for themselves for a while. So where do you want to go today? What kind of list are we prosecuting around SharePoint? Well, I think one of the things is, because you've got a pretty broad audience, and I didn't want to limit it to just SharePoint. Sure. Love to talk about kind of the underlying platform issues that SharePoint will expose. So if you're having a problem with SharePoint performance, here are 10 things it might be. And um, it really applies to any system that you're working with, anything that you are saying, oh, well, it's a complex system, it's got lots of moving parts. Yes. Right. And you, I know you deal with these all the time. Well, I'm a web scaling guy, so I don't generally right. look at that from a SharePoint perspective, but I'm with you. It's exactly that. The site is slow. You know, where do we start? Yeah. Well, and I think they're a great place to start is SQL, right? Because whether it's SharePoint or whether it's a web system, more than likely you've got SQL sitting behind it, right? And, yeah. And I can't tell you how many times we've done exactly that. We said, oh, the queries are taking long. It's the DBA's fault. And then we can all go home. Right. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I know I'm supposed to be here all day, but this didn't take long. No. Um, sometimes we can load the blame off somebody else. Although I find generally when it comes down to SQL problems, it comes down to performance problems at all. It's just recognizing what's fast and what's slow in a system. Right. And reading and writing to disk arguably is the slowest thing you can do. Yeah. It's measured in milliseconds. Right. Where, you know, CPU and memory are me- measured in nanoseconds. Right. And that's, <laughs> a, that's a lot of orders of magnitude. I mean, it's yeah. only one, a few... Uh, uh, just a couple of vowels different, but we forget how big a difference that is. Right. Uh, and even network is faster than that. You, it's hard to, to to blame writing on disk, you know, physically altering the organization of electrons and magnetic media takes time. 
Yes, it does. And it takes time even for it to get around to the right spot. Yeah. Right? Like that, that rotation on the merry-go-round takes a little bit of time. Yeah. And I do think SSDs are going to have a fairly profound impact on all things storage related, but that it's going to take a while for that to, to permeate everything. Well, and we're, we're already seeing some of that, but I, I think fundamentally, um, until you understand how storage works, until you get that that storage problem is a big problem and you have to think about how you're organizing the bits, mm-hmm. right? Like I've got a, I've got a post on my blog about computer uh, hard disk performance from the ground up. Right. And I talk all the way about sectors and tracks mm-hmm. and, you know, most of the new drives now are on uh, 4k sectors instead of 512. And what right. does that mean? And, you know, what does it mean to do a random seek versus a sequential one? Sure. And, the, the the impact of RPM on the drive, both yep. positive and negative. You know, right. there, there's pluses and minus to all of that. Although, I mean, you really started here talking about SQL Server. We've just gone immediately to the disk side of SQL Server. Right. But do you find folks blaming SQL for stuff that's not really SQL's fault? Are we, are, are we abusing SQL? Well, of course we're abusing SQL. It's, <laughs> that's what it's there for, yeah. right? Like, it's the it's the punching bag that you're supposed to hit. Well, especially when we're talking about SharePoint, because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're literally talking about storing documents for of SharePoint in SQL Server? Yeah. That's really not what SQL Server was intended to do. No, it wasn't. But it, interesting, it, it, a SQL is kind of like an aside for the SQL architecture. You know, SQL is really constructed in pages, right? Mm-hmm. It's it got 8K pages. Well, you know, it's not that big of a deal to go, I'm going to allocate it an 8k page to this file. Right. Right. So it's not, it's from a storage perspective, it's messy. Um, and from a IOPS perspective, it's messy because if you have a data table or an index table, you need a lot more IOPS on that than you need for, Oh, I'm going to pull this document out every once in a while. Sure. I mean, but of all this effort that has been done by the SQL team to be really good at aggregate calculation, at, at filtering and sorting, all kind of chucked out in the SharePoint world where you're like, here, store this goo. Okay, hey, give it back to me. Yeah. So I think one of the things that happened in the 2010 timeframe, well, 2007 timeframe, we got EBE, mm-hmm. um, which was the external blob uh, something or other. Anyway, and then we got in 2010, we got RBS, remote blob storage. Right. So you now have a provider model that allows you to extract that content out of the core database and put it someplace else. And so the database just then holds a pointer. Which is which makes a lot more sense to me. And funny, in SQL 2012, that's now a core feature inside of SQL as well, that it right. even treats those external files completely transactionally. Right. Yep. You got to wonder how much of that was the impact that SharePoint had on SQL Server. That's a that's a good question. I hadn't thought I didn't thought about it I that just way. I feel like it's... the products affect each other. You know, right. as much as we we realize that that Microsoft is a bunch of different companies largely competing with each other as well. Sooner or later, a SharePoint guy sat down with a SQL Server guy over lunch, and they talked about, "Boy, wouldn't it be great if?" Yeah, right after the SQL Server guy stopped profusely beating the uh, SharePoint guy for doing an awful data design. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, and those are mistakes that were made. 10 something years ago 12 yeah and we, we still really never untangled them no no we haven't so yeah so, so sql is our favorite punching bag sure right now whether it's sharepoint or it's a web app i mean i've, I've seen lots of people just completely destroy sql mm-hmm. um and the the funny thing is though is sql is just such a resilient tool yeah, just is, about any other product would have just tipped over with some of the abuse that we've fed it right yeah and so the thing about the thing I tell people is memory's cheap, buy more. Yes. Right? How and much memory does SQL Server want? 
more. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's exactly it. it. How much does the box hold? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that. That would be good. And and so I, I can, you know, I talked to some of my enterprise clients and they're like, you want to put how much memory in SQL Server? I'm like, the box will hold 128. Let's do that. Yeah. You know, because well, it's insanely cheap, right? Especially right, right now. A couple insanely grand. Insanely yeah. cheap. Yeah. And, and, and they're like, well, why does it need that much RAM? I'm like, because it'll talk to the disks twice. Right. Once to read it yeah. and once to write it. And never again. And never again. Yeah. And he keeps it all in memory. And then, and as you said, nanoseconds versus milliseconds, mm-hmm. it's, it's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. A thousand fold difference. That's a big deal. Yeah. Well, and great advice. Just keep on hitting that. Be conscious of the disk architecture in SQL Server and how much time you're spending on that. There's a particular things you watch for to know it's that SQL Server impairing SharePoint performance. Yeah, there are a couple of there's a couple of really kind of these are these are the cheaters mm-hmm. ways, right? Like, so if I'm talking to a new client and I'm trying to just get an order of magnitude for the level of problem, the big thing I'll ask them for is SQL Server Buffer Manager page life expectancy. Huh. Okay. So this explain what this counter does. This counter is. When the cache manager pulls a page from the disk and puts it into memory, it goes, how long do I think I'll be able to keep this around? Right. Now, as it turns out for SharePoint applications, and really for a lot of them, the magic number is about 300 as the value, and it's seconds. It's measured in seconds. And so basically, if I can hold on to this, I think, for five minutes, that's good. Well, now, why is that number the right one? Well, because as it turns out, most users perform the next operation within five minutes. And that resets the cache counter. And it resets the cache counter. And so it's, it's an LRU and so least recently used. Mm-hmm. So it it gets to keep holding on to the stuff that's getting used. Right. If you walk away from your computer for 10 minutes and you come back and you do something on a website, almost always it's slower. Right. Because right? your cache, everything it had for you has been flushed out. Now, if we add more memory to the SQL Server, we're going to extend that time. Yes, absolutely. Plain and, and simple. It's, yeah. And and by that same counterpoint, as more users are using more things and there's more stuff in SharePoint, that number is going to go down and down and down and performance is going to degrade. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And I think the it's it's not, it transitions through that 300 number very quickly, mm-hmm. right? Like, so I either see it in the tens of thousands or I see it at, 20. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's not a lot of middle ground. Oh, right. Yeah, actually, getting it at 300 is probably pretty hard. It's, it's, it, 300 is actually really easy if you use the, the model that memory is cheap, buy right. more. Yes. Right? If you but just if you're not going to be at 300, you're going to be in the thousand. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. Right. So, yes, getting it above 300 is very easy. Right. Getting it, you'll never get it at 300. Right. Of course, now somebody, some listener is going to send me a screenshot. Look, mine's 300. Yeah. Well, and keep a copy of that because that's rare. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly. shiny and cool. It's shiny and cool. <laughs> so. Okay. Let's get past SQL Server. What next? Well, of course, SQL is really dependent on disks. Right. Right. Once you get past the memory, and, and we, there's only so much you can do with cache memory. Mm-hmm. It's a lot, but. It's terabytes of RAM. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, there was a terabyte of RAM in the demo machine, the SQL Server at SharePoint conference in 2011. Wow. I was, I was like, I can't imagine that. That's, that's cra- is crazy. That's a lot of memory. That is a lot of memory. So, uh, so underneath that's disks, right? right? We started talking about disks really early yeah. about, you know, what is the disks and what is it? But there's still a lot of people that don't get raid. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I should say there's a lot of snake oil salesmen. Yes. I won't call them out, but it's, it is sold rather deceptively how's that <laughs> rather Do you like that <laughs> rather deceptively yes. i would say completely deceptively <laughs> um 
So I think so. So RAID, right? Redundant array of inexpensive disks. Mm-hmm. It's been around with us for years and years and years. Um, thanks to the guys at Berkeley. So what happens is disks used to be really incredibly expensive, right? Right. And so we did RAID five. So it's uh, n disks plus one parity, right? And that works really well as long as you don't have disk failures. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't work so well with writes because you have to write across all the drives at the same time. Yes. You activate all the ARMs and the ARMs are the limiting resource. Um, so one of the things that happened is we really should have made a change to RAID 10, which is mirroring and striping, yeah. right? Um, which, by the way, it's twice as good. Mathematically speaking, 10 yeah. is twice as good as 5. <laughs> that number didn't come by accident. <laughs> yeah, it isn't, I, it's just a, it's a, it's like 42. It's an important number. Yes, it is an important number. But it, it, it comes down to you don't want your stuff stored on one disk where if that fails, you lose it. Yes. You need it stored somewhere else. And you need to get more drive arms at the problem. Right. Right. It, so the limiting for for a disk is it's got an arm and it can only read what's underneath it. Yeah. More arms equal more places you can read simultaneously mm-hmm. equal better. So mirroring for redundancy and striping so that there's more than one place to read stuff from. Well, and mirroring actually on a read side mm-hmm. for a read operation gives you the ability to read from either of the drives. Right. So it does still give you some more, particularly if you're RAM starved and you haven't read everything up into memory. Yeah. So, but it consumes more disks. But last time we looked, those platters were still relatively inexpensive for the performance costs. Relatively, yeah, yeah relatively is, and and certainly, you know, there's tiered storage now. People are thinking about tier one storage, tier two, tier three, and you've got to make those decisions. Yeah, you certainly look at a bank of SSDs for the stuff that's most intensive, and then yep. some 15k drives behind that, and and then we even get down to not only slower drives but other storage mechanisms. I've seen great big tape arrays and so forth. Although these days with three terabyte drives, just yeah. use the spinning media. Good enough. Yeah, one of the one of the acronyms most people haven't heard about is massive array of inexpensive disks. Right, and that's more of a I'm just going to go take a whole bunch of really slow SATA drives and I'm going to put a whole bunch of them in a bank and get just, you know, terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of storage. Petabytes. Petabytes of storage. There you go. Storage. Yeah. So. But I also find that uh, most SAN architectures are designed to sell more SAN. Yes. (laughs) They've done a very good job of the correct answer when you have a problem with your SAN is buy more SAN. Right. Uh, As opposed to actually setting it up really well so that you use what you've got well. Or understanding it, or yeah, I mean, because in and you know that with sands, um, you develop hot spots, sure, right? You have drives that just get oversaturated with I/O based on the configuration, yep. And you really need to be able to dynamically pull the, that apart and get that across more drive arms. Yeah, I, I do think it takes time and experience for people to be able to study how their sands being used and realize what's busy and what isn't, and right? Get that spread across more platters, right? And and I think the great crime is. Um, the storage vendors, the sand storage vendors, like to tell people it's it's just set it and forget it, right? It's right. the Ronco oh, set it and forget the it. Great thing. lie of virtually yeah. every technology, right? Exactly, it's never true. And, and although it is, if you do that, you're very well set up to buy more of it soon. Yes, so, right. I think understanding how it actually works and getting the maximum performance from it is going to save you. This is the part that drives me nuts. Dropped a quarter million dollars on the sand rig won't send the guy to a two-day class on how to use it right. Yeah. Drives me batty. Because then uh, six months later, we need another quarter million for another sand rig. Right. Because, yeah, it is too slow. And, yeah, you're right. If we buy another one, it will go faster. But I bet if we sent that guy to the class, probably could be still running on the one just fine. Right. Well, and I think, sidebar on that little piece, is that 
the 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 other problem is is we're asking our people to be experts in everything. Yeah. Right. And so the sand guy in a really large organization, 15, 20, 30,000 people, he's a sand guy, right? Yeah. You can afford to have a guy who does just that. He does just that. But in a lot of organizations, the sand guy is also the exchange guy, is also the SharePoint guy, mm-hmm. who also does desktop support when the help desk can't figure it out. I mean, right. And so that's where I think we get into trouble with with that situation where we don't want to send him to training because that takes him away from his other 15 jobs. Yeah. Well, I do think he's, he's oversaturated, and I do think we need to remind ourselves that the sand companies, these storage companies, are in the business of selling more. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you've got to pay attention. Yeah. All right. We're gonna, halfway we, through a show, I think we've made <laughs> two of your We, we have. We've made two. So, so let's go. <laughs> they, they go a little quicker, though. Um, so, so let's take a side, side jaunt, because okay. we've still got more disk stuff to talk about. But right. one of the other things that just absolutely can kill a the performance of any big system is load balancer configuration. For sure. And we were, we were talking about the use of memory as cache, mm-hmm. right? Now we're talking about that in the SQL Server context, but really cache equal good. Right. More cache equal better. Yes. And so one of the things that happens is sometimes we still configure load balancers round robin, right? right. Like go to any server. It doesn't really matter. Well, no, it does matter because I've got to go pick up the user's context and understand the user so that I can serve them. We're just propagating cache information across all of the servers. Yeah. Yeah. So there is an advantage. And, and look, from a, from a web scaling perspective, round robin makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Keep the balance very even across multiple servers. Right. But we weren't talking about web scaling. We were talking about performance. And scaling yep. and performance are not the same thing. Right. So stickiness. Right. Which we've been told was evil. Right. Does have some advantages in the SharePoint scenario. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would say in most .NET applications, anything that you're going to use cache right. and use it effectively, you 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 want to stay on a server. Yeah, you have an interest in staying on a server. Fail over if that server goes away. Right. Yeah. But then you can take the performance hit. Right. Exactly. Optimal performance. Stay where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, you know, the but the interesting thing about this is generally two different guys. Yeah. The guy owning the SharePoint, the guy owning the load balancer, not the same guy. No. Right? Or again, the low balance has been set up by the company that you bought it from. And yep. you've set it up and you'll never touch it again, which right. I think is also a mistake. Yes. That you, again, you don't understand it. It was configured in the least risky way. Right. And may not be the optimal way. But actually right. getting a chance to have that conversation about how my SharePoint system works well to the guy who owns the low balancer, whether he's internal or external, I think is the important part. We just don't ever have that conversation. Right. And that's, and that's you know, one of the things about SharePoint, and I know the, the scale of applications you deal with mm-hmm. it's it touches so many things right sure. so so you think about it so we've talked about the dbas we talked about the sand architecture now we're into networking mm-hmm. right and i haven't even gotten to the wan yet no. i'm just talking about the local networking and switching and um it just taught it just touches so many so many people in the organization for sure there's so many different pieces and it takes so many different skills and it's part of the whole problem yeah. and are you set on hardware load balancers or are you okay with uh, and uh, network load balancing and LB. So I have history, mm-hmm. and here's the thing: my load balancer is a watchdog for my for my servers. Okay. That's what my that's it's part of its role. That is that is in fact a key part of its role. Right. It's responsible for making sure that the servers it's sh- sending load to are healthy. Right, and I do believe in this idea that most load balancers are brought in for reliability, not for performance. Yep, that fits. Be- I need to be able to deal with a server failure and not lose a site. Yep. And so from my perspective, I I still like hardware load balancers, Mm -hmm. really like them because it gives me a way to monitor and really get information about how my servers are performing in a way that is 
um, it, because it's in the middle of the conversation, sure. it really can know. Yeah. It, it, it's location matters. The fact yep. it's physicality external to the servers, I think yep. also matters. But I think it's also, you know, we don't always have to buy F5. Right. Right. They're very expensive because they're very high end for extremely high performance. And I'm betting you're not pushing that kind of load out of your SharePoint server. I mean, if you are, good on you. But if you're not, there are lower tiers. You don't have to spend that much. I, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because one of the things I try and tell uh, .NET devs when I'm talking to them is, if you do development for SharePoint, mm-hmm. this will be the busiest website you've ever worked on. Right. So I'm already underplaying how busy it actually is going to be. Right. We, but it, it's, it's, and I say that because most ASP.NET devs, if you're doing it just a simple little, I don't know, expense site or something. Right. Right. You, you don't get a lot of traffic. Right. Right. But it's a single purpose site. Right. And SharePoint's the opposite of single purpose. Right. If it's, if it's thriving in an organization, it gets yanked in so many directions. It's yeah. one of its big liabilities. Right. Right. Yeah. I so so I believe that uh, so first of all I love F5 devices but sure. but I think there are lower tiers if you're in a if you're in a mid-sized organization maybe you're just load balancing two front end webs yep. and you don't and you're not saturating them. Yeah. You know some of the organizations I deal with we've got four front ends that are fully saturated all, all the, time. the time. And and in those cases I really want a device watching the conversations well, and also offload you uh, offloading SSL, which SharePoint doesn't like, but yes, yeah. But it means it's in your best interest when you talk about five loaded down front ends. Yep, you want some of that CPU back, and, right? And let's face it, F five and a number of other products, right. are pretty darn good at SSL offload. Well, SSL is we we think that that SSL is a big deal, and it's just it's not that complicated anymore. Yeah, it's right. Not, it's a known technology. It's only CPU cycles. Yeah. Most of the time, your web servers are sitting around smoking cigarettes anyway. Right. So, you know, if you don't worry about the CPU, you're usually bound by other things. But offload is offload. And, yes. And, and if you're going to go buy an appliance like this, just recognize it's more than a load balancer. Yeah, It does absolutely. a lot of things. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a key point as we're talking about this. Hey, while we're, while we're on network, let me, mm. let me shift to um, kind of some core network things because people have done some really amazingly uh, confusing things. Mm-hmm. So SQL Server, really the heart of SharePoint, yep. and the front-end webs. They, the, the conversation between the front-end webs and SQL is absolutely white-hot. Right. And people put firewalls between them. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it's a web server. Right. And so it might end up in the DMZ if it's externally available. Right. And SQL servers, because their data never, ever in the DMZ. Right. So bingo, bango, you're in a firewall. Right. But oddly enough, it's, it's uh, this might have a performance impact. Just just a small, teeny, eeny-weeny one. Particularly what? if you do something silly like have a firewall with a one-gig NIC on each side. Right. And And... You've got, you know, four front-end web servers, and you've done, let's say you've done a good configuration, and you've bound four NICs together, right? right. So there's four gig of... Coming of at you. Coming at you off four servers. There's 16 gig, and you're trying to squeeze it through this teeny, teeny, weeny little... little I bet you could take one of those servers out of the loop, and it wouldn't change performance at all. Probably not. you're probably completely throttled by how much you can hammer down that network. Heck, if you're... You know, the funny thing is, and we keep forgetting this about Ethernet, when you actually get towards 80% of saturation on Ethernet, it starts to unravel. You start right. to have a significant number of collisions right. and your traffic performance goes down, not right. up. Right. We just don't normally bang against that limit. Well, and, and the other thing, so the other piece of that is that's also somewhat switch dependent, right? Because mm-hmm. now we're not doing hubs anymore, yeah. right? We're doing we're doing switches all the time. Yeah. And so as long as your switch backplane can 
handle the the buffering, it's not as bad. But yeah. I'm with you if it's it, fast enough. And it's right. And, and, you know, again, you get back to what's the difference between a two hundred dollar switch and a thousand dollar switch? Yep. And it's those moments. Yep. It's that kind of high load. But the other side of this is you've clearly created this throttle. Yeah. Now you know. Do you know how to expand it? Can right. you? bond across can you go to a 10 gig is there something you can do to open that that neck up a bit or or do you really need do you really 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 need a firewall there right are you really doing stateful packet inspection really right and and in in a meaningful way anybody really want to upset the security guy explain your caching strategy (laughs) remember how you were protecting all that data in the sql server well guess how much of it's actually living in the web server anyway yeah yeah uh, so maybe the, then the, and the funny part is, and this is the question then, if I end up pushing that SharePoint server onto the inner firewall, would it perform better? Um, yeah, it would. It yeah. would absolutely. If you, if you put a, if you put a tunnel, uh, to it and, and put it next to the SQL server, it absolutely will perform yeah. better. And I guess the other side of this is how much of the traffic can I just keep internal? So it's never dealing with that. And I only put the external people through that pain rather than just have everybody going into that DMZ zone to try and yep. communicate. Yeah, and you can absolutely do that. You can mm-hmm. you can do multiple NICs and you know, all the crazy networking stuff we sure. can do to, to make that work. And while we're at it, let's hope you actually have a separate subnet for the communication between the the web servers and SQL Server anyway, that you're not all sharing across the common black plane. Yeah, now, so, okay, so this is this is a place where we can debate, right? <laughs> so here's the thing. I have a fixed number of NICs, yep. right? So, so let's just pick two, mm-hmm. right? Um, should I separate... My front end traffic and my back end traffic, or should I bond the two nicks together? And actually push more and count on the the quality of my switching to manage all of that. Yeah. Because network isolation really comes from the old hub world. Exactly. Where we were doing subnet isolation to protect that way. Well, and also before we re- bonding really got to be very good. Well, and bonding is only really, I mean, I think 2012 is where we're going to see bonding is now a trivial capability. Mm-hmm. Where they, you know, this is an OS that's now said it's not hardware specific anymore. Everything works. Just right. do it. Right. And so, yeah, I think you're making a great argument there. Plus, ten gigs being a pain, like yeah. you, you know, we could live with a whole bunch of. We, they're basically putting RAID onto networking now at this point, right? Where it's just buy lots of one gig and bond it together the way you want, right? Uh, and again, my history, yeah, lends me to subnetting. Right, I let to network out virtual lands, isolating each one of those traffics by themselves, mostly from a diagnostic perspective. Right, that I can actually sit down and figure out what's going on, where we're where we're bottlenecking. Right, yeah, I know, and I think I so, and I and I absolutely believe in that, and I support it, and I'm and I'm you know, t- if we if we rewind the clock five years, I'm with you. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely with you because the the bonding, the link aggregation didn't work well. No, it was very challenging, and and so now I think it's I think. I'm shifting my guidance to customers to bond rather than isolate. Right. Um, I, I can buy that. I, well, I can all, more importantly, I can see a 24-year-old, young, smart, you know, hot, looking at this and going, what are you guys doing with this crazy VLAN crap? I'll just bond everything and be so fast you won't care. Right, right. So, you know, we, and we, it's up to us to not get left behind. Yep. So, I'm, I skipped over one. I want to hit real quick, mm-hmm. and I don't really... We've we've talked about disk is disk good and that kind of stuff. Yep. A specific SharePoint thing is SharePoint servers, the front end webs have disk in them. Yep. And if you're using them for query, they have specific IO operations happening local to them. Hmm. So you cannot ignore the performance of the disk in the front end web. Now that's pretty atypical for a a typical .NET app. You don't really care what the front end web no. performance of the disk is, um, and you also don't care about size. 
in SharePoint, because the index is actually ending up on each of the query servers individually, you have to keep quite a bit of actual storage local to the query servers. And I think you'd still want that to be RAID 10 for reliability, and it would happen to be faster. Yeah, yeah. And and this is one of those cases where the RAID 10 is really helpful to you because you get two read arms instead right. of instead of the one. Now, given, given I have some budget for SSD, do I put it there or do I put it back with the SQL Server? Um, I would not put SSD, I would not put SSD on the front end webs. Okay. Although they need, you need to be considerate of how much storage they have in their IOPS. Mm-hmm. It's more of a be buying SAS 10K drives versus yeah. buying SATA or yeah, buying SATA 7200s. And that's what happens is people buy the SATA drives the, the front end webs because they're like, this is disposable. Yeah. It's a front-end web. It's disposable. So I don't need good disk. Yeah, but it does do certain things. And so for a little bit more money, I get a better disk and it'll make a difference. Yeah. So so the next one is you've done um, so you've done a lot of work with, with lots of websites. So what about having a quality assurance environment or a test or a staging or an environment that is not production, that is fractionally equivalent to production? Stuff I've done for years and trust and i'm good at and i'm transitioning away from really the devops movement is taking a hold in our space my friend and the devops movement says let us instrument well in production and allow incremental deployment so we can actually see what the results is here's the problem i'm running into at the very large scale these days and i don't know that sharepoint fits here but you tell me i'm getting to a point now where i cannot create sufficiently good quality tests to actually answer the question that you're asking which is will this thing survive the weekend so, 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 yeah, and so you're in a spot where where you're talking about from a performance perspective, yeah, and from sort of stability, scaling perspective, too. stability, so, scaling. You know, this is the old, yeah. this is the Black Friday problem. Yep. Right. Yep. I have so much traffic coming at me on this particular weekend, and the only thing that matters is that we survive the weekend. Right. And how do I create a test? Because humans are weirder than load test machines. Man. Absolutely. Like I'm trying my best here. I'm taking the scripts from last year's Black Friday. I'm doing and creating these phenomenally complex load tests, and I'm still getting fooled because right. none of my testing tools can simulate the craziness right. of of a user. Really crazy humans. Well, and it's weird behavior. And I, I'm admittedly we're off track here, but let me tell you, it's okay. Here's one. The, here's the thing that started to happen. And I was finally able to show up in the logs. Is as performance started to degrade because we were just under so much load, we have latency problems, which mm-hmm. is impossible to simulate well in load. Right. But here's the bigger one: the users start clicking on buttons anyway. Right. Page is only halfway through loading. Right. right. And what does that do to the unfinished render on the back end? So suddenly my number of users was no longer the issue. Suddenly page requests per users were going up. Right. And renders weren't finishing. Right. And that was con- ripping through memory in my web servers. Right. So it was not the problem I was looking for. And one I never saw in load testing, because oddly enough, load testing tools don't get impatient. Right. They don't wait for half a page to render and hit the button. Right. And that, it, how do I simulate that? Right. And so getting back to your original question is, yeah, I loved my pre-prod environment and they got expensive to do and because I needed the same load testers. I needed the same load balancers and right. I needed the same SAN. Right. They may have been only a fraction of it, but it was a lot of money to build that. Right. And I was failing in my tests. Right. I still couldn't create a good enough load. And so what we ended up having to do is this new, much more new style of instrumenting in production in a way that doesn't impact performance. Yep. And being able to do incremental rollout on just a couple of servers and watch how it behaves. And from that, getting the confidence that this can actually keep rolling out and always being able to roll back. Yep. 
Now, that's me owning the whole stack in the ASP.NET world. Tell me SharePoint could do this. How well can I instrument in production? How good is a roll forward, roll back mechanism that me as the ops guy has the confidence to know, yeah, I know you've passed your set of tests and it seems right, but I actually had to know what it's going to look like in production. And the only way I can do that is to put it partially into production and be able to get back. Yeah, and so I think, um, and so I think you're, um, you're, you're operating at a completely uh, different level than where where I was going. But I want to finish this up because I love it. Okay. Um, so SharePoint, if you don't take the reins, and you can take the reins, yeah. will deploy a package to every server. Yeah. And so that's a problem, right? Because you can't say fractionally deploy it mm-hmm. to server server. Now you can do that if you tell SharePoint, no, you don't do this. I'm doing it. Right. Um, so you can absolutely do that. The instrumentation level is there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the, the ULS logs. There's, um, the ability to do the developer dashboards. And there's, there's all kinds of things that you can do to, um, instrument your code. Mm-hmm. So I think you can do it. Do I think it comes out of the box for free? No. No. And, and let's face it, this approach doesn't come out of the box for free anywhere, anywhere. in the Microsoft stack. Right. They're just starting to catch into this. Right. Um, so, but where I, so where I was going with this is, like a lot of the really simple stuff that people make mistakes on. Mm-hmm. And, and this is just, you know, every developer is, something's new to a developer once, yeah. right? Or repeatedly, um, <laughs> if they forget. So, so we, the, um, what we do is the, the, I need to have an environment where I have a load balancer mm-hmm. because people make crazy mistakes oh, yeah, about, absolutely vital, uh, about what happens with load balancers. And, mm-hmm. And it also gives me a way for my ops guys to figure out how to configure the load balancer. Well, and ex- experiment with it. Yeah. That's the bigger thing is the only load balancer we own is in production. We never, ever tinker with it. Right, you can We can't. never find out what it can do, what it can't do. What does being wrong look like? Right. It's, often, it's like, hey, you know, actually diagnosing that you need to be sticky and we're round robining. Right. What does the errors look like? So that you can right. actually see that so that if it ever happens, because it happens, right. you can diagnose it. Right. Well, and it's one of the other things that happens in SharePoint is we have profiles, which are typically on a different URL, mm-hmm. and their main intranets on, on a URL. And so when we cache, we actually want to cache the user in both places. Mm-hmm. And, and if they stay on server, we're good. But what happens is the load balancer sees the request to profile.mycompany.com and to intranet.mycompany.com as separate and can route them to different servers. Right. And so now I've got it cached back on multiple servers like we were talking about. So there's just a whole bunch of that kind of fine-tuning about the way your environment will behave in prod that you need some sort of a QA environment. And yeah. I, and I, and I, I actually have a blog post, which I keep writing more to and don't finish. <laughs> the blog post that never ends? Yeah, because back in 2006, and we were way off topic, I wrote this thing about the declining importance of performance testing. Mm-hmm. And it's really all around the problem you just said, which is you cannot simulate users. No. I don't care how good you um, are. You my can't. only way I can performance test my app is to throw it in front of my customers and then beg forgiveness. Yep. And so one of my customers was starving it out. So that, that article got ripped apart. People hated it. Mm-hmm. All the people who did performance testing yeah. hated it. Yeah. It's like, we need more, not right, less. Right. More, not less. But um, so anyway, so the performance, the, the what you're saying about performance testing is and scalability and reliability, those, those level of testing is great. Mm-hmm. I just need basic, is the code going to actually work yeah. when I have two servers? And NTLM double hop. 
right? That still bites people. Yep. I know this, you know this, but NTLM Double Hop still bites people because they run SQL and everything on one box in yep. their dev. And they've no idea how the, uh, the ACLs actually propagate. Right. They get surprised. Right. And so that's why we need some sort of a QA environment, even if it's small, even if it's not, you know, super duper. Right. We need something with basic mechanics. We're just recognizing the organization of your app when it's running in your dev and even in your QA environment is not what it's going to look like in production. Yep. At least test it before it gets to production. Yep. Yep. Uh, the the high-end load testing, that sort of thing, the, the Black Friday problem is another problem. Yeah. But actually understanding your infrastructure, it's, it's pretty vital. And being able to, to recognize that it's going to evolve, that you're going to change things. Yeah. And that the configuration is going to be different as the number of users goes up and as right. there's more demand. Uh, and, you know, the data sets get bigger. All those things need to be tested again. And if you don't have any gear to test with, you're just, you're just going to test on the customer. Right. You're going to, you, you are going to test it. You're right. just going to test it in a way that makes people sad. Right. And, and there's, you know, there's, there's balance to that and holding extra stuff. So, and I know we've got to keep moving, but, um, the other thing, so this is kind of related, mm-hmm. right? How many times have you seen an environment where they shut the dev server down and production goes down? I love that. I've even had customers where they're saying, we're thinking we need to deploy Visual Studio onto the production environment. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so you clearly don't have a a clean build process. Right. You don't actually know, you've never packaged your software in a useful way. Does that happen in SharePoint? I mean, I had, I've seen that happen in the regular ASP.NET world. Well, so what it is, it's all our custom code, right? Right. And it's just custom code and somebody hard-coded a URL in, right? And it's hard-coded to the dev server, right? And so prod... You know, five, six servers, but it's one little tiny thing and it yep. keeps going back to dev and it's checking in and nobody pays any attention no. to it. Until that until thing's the, off. Right. Until somebody decides that they took dev down to back it up or do something, something. silly and prod goes down and people are like, why is prod down? Yeah. So, you know, you were talking about subnetting and VLANs and all that stuff mm-hmm. earlier. Absolutely do that. Do not ever, ever, ever let your dev environment talk to prod, period. No, there needs to be a, a logical break between those two networks so that you know when you package that app, it's truly packaged and contained. Yeah, yeah. And I see that problem. I see that problem all the time. Wow. That's a good one. So here's another. So this one's, this will be a good one to run by you because um, you do all this testing. So what is your feeling about getting the real IP address of the user onto the web server that services the request? I've <sighs> been burned by it so many times when it didn't happen. And load balancers mess this up. Yes. Right? Because typically the load balancer is now the endpoint. Yep. That's what the user sees. Yep. And now our internal servers only see the IP address of the load balancer. Right. And in the HTTP header, most good load balancers will rewrite that as the remote IP is a different right. entry. But different load balancers have different entries in the HTTP header. Right. And you're not looking for it anyway. Right. So you're and not even looking in the right place to know what the customer's IP was. And it doesn't end up in the it doesn't end up in the IIS logs by default. Nope. And it's it's just it, it has to you have and again this gets back to you said this already. You need to test with your load balancer. You need to understand your load balancer. Right. You need to understand how the change. So here's the burn I had. You'll love this one. Um custom built blog site. Mm-hmm. Getting some good traffic decides it's going to go to multiple servers. So we add a load balancer in front of that. Well, one of the tools that he had in place was an anti-spam filter for comments. And one of the best things he found was that the, the comment spam generators all come from a single po- source and they'll write a hundred comments in a fraction of a second. Totally sensible protection. Oh, 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 I know where this is going. <laughs> so we put the load balancer in, we fire it up and no, and you can write one comment. Right. And then nobody else can write a comment. Wow. So it's like, oh, the comments engine is broken. 
Yeah. Right? I mean, just the lo- hoops we jumped around to finally realize, oh, no, the IP filter is what's breaking it. And we simply have to look at the other HTTP header piece for what the real IP is to fix it. Yeah. That's days of yeah. diagnosis. And again, if you don't actually have, and how are you going to test that? Yeah. Right? Because we tested, right. we tested, every, we wrote a comment, we tested everything, worked right. fine. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't until you got to velocity yep. that it mattered. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, so I'm, a, as much as I hate it from a core networking perspective, I'm a fan of split path. Yeah. Which is to, which allows you to get the real IP to the. I, yeah. Bottom, but I, you know, I get back to this method, but this goal. Yep. Get the real IP back to the machine. Yeah. Whatever it takes. Yep. Right. And just understand if you know your load balancer, it's in there. Yep. You just have to map it in a way that you can get it where it needs to go. It needs to show up in the logs. You just have to take the time to find a way there. And split path is one way. It's yep. not the only way. Right, right. And and so this actually leads us to the last point, uh, or the, the next last point, the, the last technical point, which mm. is monitoring. You know, you have to take the logs. You have to get lo- meaningful data in well, your and logs. You've got and I'm all jacked up now that I'm thinking, we got to do a DevOps for SharePoint show all by itself. Like that unto itself is a topic of just okay. how do I really instrument the production environment and really know what is the health of the SharePoint infrastructure? Yep. Is it running well? Yep. How close are we to the line? Yep. And now, now we can get into the whole argument of what is the service level agreement we're committed to for the SharePoint site and how close are we to that? Right. And that, to me, when we start thinking in terms of DevOps, and this is what monitoring is really about. Right. Tell me how healthy this is really yep. and how much longer it's going to be healthy for. Yep. If this thing's really popular and growing, you know, we, there should be a horizon. We don't yeah. wait till it tips over. Right. It's like, hey, we've got about four months. You can't really figure out when you're going to run a disk space, right? I yep. got about four months for a run a disk space. But you know, do you know how long before the NIC saturated? Yeah. Do you know how long before we should be lighting another front end? Yeah. That's that's a really funny thing because I've I've gone into lots of places where the NIC is completely saturated, yeah. completely, and the instrumentation is not watching. Right, they don't know. If you're not looking at it, you don't know. It's not like a little sign pops out that says, help me. Right. You have to go look. Right. And so what's good monitoring look like in the SharePoint world? Like, What do you got to do? Well, it doesn't look any different than other really good monitoring for anything large, right? right? I mean, it's it's you're looking at the SQL we've talked about. You're mm-hmm. looking at disk for latency uh, over 20 milliseconds. You're looking at the server CPU. You're looking at the NICs. I mean, it's... Per- again, most of this stuff is perfmon data. Yeah. We're trying to pull it together as a whole. So Opsman will help us if you're yep. going to go down the system center path. Yep. We should be able to get a genuine look at the entire infrastructure, the front end and so forth. Yep. But I think you're right. The networking gets ignored. Yep. And it doesn't, and the, the low balancer does get pulled into that evaluation so we can actually understand that. Well, and, and so, so there's a couple of things that uh, system center won't do for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you really have to monitor your switches, right? Like seriously, when the yeah. backplanes get saturated or the CPU gets saturated, you're not going to know. Right. And you can pick that up in Ops Man, but I don't think people do it. It will right. pick up SNMP messages, but it take, means you taking the time to understand your switches well enough to push those messages back. Right. Ops Man makes us lazy. It's yes. so easy to snap onto a Microsoft SQL, uh, server and just expect all the instrumentation in the world. Right. You tell it you're running SharePoint, it goes, okay. Right. But if you actually going to take the time to get, put your HP Pro curves into that as right. well and understand these are the backplanes that are running the traffic for these right. things and look at the S&P messages for saturation, right. now you have a chance. Right. And same for the load balancer. Right. You know, what's the point? How often are we switching? What nodes are going down? Yep. Like, actually, that's tons of valuable information. It's probably not yep. integrated in. Yeah. I, I can tell you, I don't know of a single client that has integrated switches. Some of them will do the load balancer. Some will do firewalls. Right. But they won't do the switches. The messaging the is there. 
It's there. I, oh, yeah. No, I know. <laughs> like, you're preaching to the choir, buddy. I know. But how do you get people to do it? Yeah. Well, and just to recognize it as the issue. But uh, so the last one okay. is people, right? And this is your Black Friday, mm-hmm. right? So, but it's Black Friday for an intranet. Yeah. Black Friday for an intranet is launch day. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, what happens is you have 100,000 employees or something stupid, and you send them all an email. All through one big email distribution list that yeah. you shouldn't have. But all yeah, all at company.com. Yeah, all at company.com. SharePoint's up. SharePoint's Go up. here. Go here and try. And then in SharePoint's case, we generally don't pre-create my sites. Right. Now it's site creation, so it's a fairly intensive process. Right. And so what happens is everybody clicks and they go, Cool, let me go see my my site. And they do that. And all of a sudden we have five thousand people trying to simultaneously create their my site what could go wrong i don't know i'm thinking <laughs> everything <laughs> this thing sucks i'm never coming back here you know you yeah. just set yourself up for failure right and so so if you're going to do so so i really encourage soft rollouts really encourage you know get people into it get some data on how things are working mm-hmm. and then if you there's a launch day there's always sure. a launch day right there's always a black friday but in that case Roll your messages out by time zone, country, something, something to slow them down. You also get back to this idea that why is there Black Friday? It's not like we're – this is not a retail site. You yeah. don't want everybody to show up and make a buy at once. Right. Like, do – spend a week at it. Why not? Right. And and take your friendliest first, the guys who can handle the yep. hit, right? And and get them happy before yeah. we move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. Yep. So that you win people over gradually. Why Big Bang? Right. Big Bang is crazy. Right. So, so, so yeah. So, so what will happen is you, you artificially create an, an abnormal load. Yeah. Disastrous load test. Right. Yeah. Disastrous load test <laughs> with real users. With real users. Yeah. That's a, not easy to do. I've, it's easy to configure a load test that'll take over a web server. The class, oh, yeah. open 10,000 connections all at once and ask for something hard. Right. You know, bunk, and that's what you just did with an email. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. You, this is, uh, this is a mechanical Turk. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks for crashing our site. I, guess that was the goal <laughs> so anyway oh, so that's the 10 that's the 10 awesome um and i have no idea where we are at time oh well you know when you have a good conversation it goes as long as it needs to go i really appreciate you dropping in to have a chat with me about this oh i really appreciate uh, the time and you know hopefully we'll we'll do that uh, devops conversation soon it's, i think it's a research piece is to just sit down and figure out if we're really going to do that whole tool chain what that looks like but that we'll save that for another show Robert Bogue, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Rich. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. 